Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I'm here in the Condé Nast podcast studios with Sebastian Modak, who's an editor for Condé Nast Traveler. Say hi, Seb. Hey, how's it going? He's becoming a podcast regular. Too regular, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Meredith Carey, who is also a podcast producer and an editor for the site. And we have on the Skype Cassie Shortsleeve, who writes frequently for us and does a little editing too. And we're here today to talk about how travel can save your life and also other things, wonderful things. So I think we all are passionate about travel and we're not passionate about it just because we like new stuff and we like planes and we like hotels and things like that, which all of which we do, but we're passionate about it because it really does make us who we are and can make us into different, smarter, kinder, better, I don't know, all the things people. But it turns out there's actually a bit of science behind that. We're not just making all that up. So, Seb, you kind of have been shepherding this work for us recently. We've done a number of pieces. We have more in the works. Can you talk about what we've seen so far and maybe some of the highlights that we have seen in it? Yeah, well, I think the overarching sentiment is that like you were saying, we're passionate about travel, we're passionate about what travel does to us. And then part of what we're trying to dig with this package we've been working on, these stories we've been putting together, is trying to get to why we travel in the first place. Is there a science behind it? And if there is, what is that science? And I think it gets into really murky territory because it's really hard to say why someone travels. And it also varies from person to person. But a good jumping off point is a piece that was published last week titled The Science of Wonderlust was written by this is a piece Mark, Mark Elwood, yep. who's a regular here, mm-hmm. and also Laura. Yeah, Laura helped Laura him Redman. out a lot with that. But yeah, you'll recognize both those names from this lovely podcast. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that piece really looks at what research there is behind, you know, whether there is something innate in us, in certain people that makes them travel more, or whether it is something that you just kind of learn to love. And spoiler alert, the result is kind of inconclusive. But there are theories. Oh, I hate that. Inconclusive. <laughs> well, it's kind of, it depends on what scientists you ask, you know, and like there's, uh, there was something that was widely circulated about a year ago in 2016, talking about the existence of a wanderlust gene. So specifically DRD47R, basically a variation of a gene that exists in, they think, 20% of the world's population that leads to people having this kind of extra level of curiosity and restlessness And they found, for example, that it's like very high in European descendants in North and South America, for example, the people who came across the oceans originally. So there are theories that there could be something there. It strikes me as one of those dopamine related. um, It is, exactly. So is there a correlation among people who display the effects of that gene, i.e. wanderlust or curiosity? I mean, I do think these are, there are two different ways of looking at the same thing. Curiosity is a good thing. That's a positive. Restlessness, I suppose, could be a negative. Yeah, and we can, we'll get into that too, because there's a whole other thing about whether there's ever too much of this. But you're right, it is driven by dopamine. It's that whether there is kind of a genetic disposition to just wanting to needing more of it, you know? I mean, it doesn't of, seem implausible, right? It's, there, it's, yeah. there are all kinds of diseases and afflictions and syndromes that do relate to dopamine and, and different people's need to have different levels of dopamine. Totally. But then, you know, the counter argument is basically that the desire to travel, the desire to see new things, the desire to get out of your comfort zone, 
is too complex to be narrowed down into a single gene. And that's what us, you know, the people on the other side of the debate say, that it involves many things. It involves a willingness to take risks. It involves a, like I said, like a restlessness, a curiosity, which aren't necessarily all stemmed from the same place. We had a pretty good spirited debate online about it from our readers. So I think people kind of have their own opinions on it. I'm not sure where I fall. I've So it's like climate change. <laughs> It's not. No, I think not. that I think that what was really cool for us was part of uh, all the stories that Seb has been putting together is a story called Travel Addiction is Real, which Elliot Stein wrote. And when we posted it on Facebook, the coolest thing was just that so many people connected with the story and were like, yes, I definitely have this. And we were talking about it. And we're like, OK, obviously you're going to choose something like a syndrome that makes you a cooler person. Right. Like, I, right. I have I, travel addiction. It's like a real thing. And I mean, there's a real definition for this. So when like, like my parents call me and they're like, you're going where again? I'd be like, I, just, well, I, have, I have a problem. I have a problem. <laughs> Let me send you, you a link. Treated for, the treatment is to travel. Right. right? But I mean, it's, it's cool. When a person commented, I have this since I have an office job and a kid in school, I have to time it. But every year I pick a new destination. To me, it's just an adventure and away from my reality, which I think was really like kind of the sentiment that we all feel, which is travel should be something that you learn a lot from. Yeah. And even if it's just a once a year addiction and you have to take that hit, that's okay. And I'll tell you that you're not addicted to travel as much as a certain French gas fitter. <laughs> oh dear. This in, story is in eighteen eighty six named Jean Albert Dada. That's not how you say his name. <laughs> um oh, is it like an assumed name? No, no I think hiding? that's his name. I'm just I can't oh, I don't speak oh, French. Okay. Um when this man wandered into a hospital in Bordeaux after having, he had deserted the French army five years before that, and he had spent those five years just wandering aimlessly around Europe on foot, and had reached Berlin, Prague, Moscow, Constantinople, when Constantinople was a thing, before just being completely overcome by exhaustion and ending up at this hospital, and they asked him what he had been doing, and he didn't know. He had fallen into like a traveling fugue state, and that's when this condition, dramomania, which literally means like, Oh, it has a name. It's, oh, no, it's, it's this, called it's, vagabond neurosis. Wait, it has it's a, a real like this is we. It's not something that we've just made up. It's in the Diagnostic and Statistical it's a Manual real of Mental Disorders. Problem, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, in two thousand, did they define it? Yeah, yeah it's like an yeah. impulse control disorder, which I think is kind of a good way to describe it. Yeah, and we might not all have it at the extent as this unfortunate gentleman, but is it innate? And I think anecdotally, you can kind of find stories that maybe either support the fact that it's innate or not. And one of those stories, transition, <laughs> Cassie, you kind of looked at, which looks at a whole other thing about, is there an age limit to travel? And also actually can travel really help you live longer? The whole idea that there are two directions, again, that this goes in. One is that it's a syndrome, it's an addiction, which is a little weird. I mean, I suppose ending up exhausted and not knowing where you are is not good. But otherwise, the effects, I suppose, gambling, like if you get broke, that's not good. But generally speaking, the effects are mostly positive, right? Or are, is, is there, are there negative so I, effects? I mean, if a little about this story I wrote, I had the pleasure of interviewing June Scott. She is She's the most adorable woman. I, she, amazing, her photos are amazing. so great. <laughs> Yeah, an 86-year-old from the Chicago area. She's been to 87 countries, um, has always traveled the world. And June is part of a Northwestern University study called the Super Aging Study, 
It's a research project that basically analyzes the brains of people who more or less seem to be resistant to the memory changes that we tend to suffer as we get older. So what researchers out at Northwestern have been trying to do is say, okay, why? They all have these amazing memories. Their brains look like the brains of 50-year-olds. What do they have in common? And, you know, so far, the researchers have had a tough time trying to put together what these people have in common. But I was able to interview uh, the head of the study out there. And one of the things that they notice is that superagers tend to be incredibly socially active. So for June, you know, that meant traveling the world mm-hmm. and meeting people. And she told me stories about you know, meeting friends everywhere and writing letters back and forth with women in Saudi Arabia and, you know, learning about the culture in Cuba and going to Iran and all of these places and meeting friends along the way and traveling with groups and whatnot. So I think the social element is a really big part of how travel helps us specifically as we age, just in, you know, strengthening our our minds. Yeah. And I think to answer your question, Brad, I think that's like we're looking at both sides of it. It can be something very beneficial that keeps this 86-year-old's brain looking like she's 50, or it can be kind of dark. And like the travel addiction piece that Elliot writes looks at, you know, some more contemporary versions of vagabond neurosis from the 19th century, um, maybe less extreme. But, you know, there's we're going to have a whole other podcast about this, so stay tuned. But Tune in in two weeks. Yeah, there's like a whole <laughs> world of like, you know, competitive travelers who are just country counting and they just like are obsessed with seeing every country, territory, you know, like So that's the downside. When they're not socially engaging, um, and, you know, we'll find this this out as to whether or not the guys who are coming on feel this way, but I think that for a lot of us... Are they all guys? No. The two people we're going to have on the podcast are both men, but I think that what is interesting on the outside looking in is, like, when I travel, I want to learn stuff, and I want to be put in a position that takes me out of my comfort zone and goes deep into the culture of wherever I'm staying. And I feel like if I was just trying to get as many places as possible before a certain year, before a certain time to beat someone else, I wouldn't hit any of those things that I like love about travel. I would just be going just to like check it off and then like keep going. Not to mention in a lot of these people, their relationships go down the toilet. Like they, they lose friends. There was one person who was trying to hold the title of world's most traveled man in the Guinness Book of World Records, which doesn't exist anymore, that title, because it's too ambiguous, where he famously said as Arrival was kind of closing in on his position, he said, quote, this title cost me six marriages and I don't intend to surrender my sword lightly. So that's like a sign of maybe a little, the darker side of just being obsessed with travel. And it's interesting, like, where do we draw that line? Because Meredith, like you were saying, I think... A lot of the psychologists I interviewed for that piece I wrote boiled it down to three different elements that made travel something that could be positive in your life. And it was social, physical and intellectual. Like you said, when you go somewhere, you want to immerse yourself in the culture. You're not just going to like check those, you know, those cities off of a a bucket list. You want to kind of learn everything you can learn from a destination. Yeah, it kind of it's like it goes back to Maslow, right? Hierarchy Hierarchy of needs, needs, right? Where you have, at the base level, you're talking about like basic shelter, food, the necessities of life. But it's like these people after the top of it, which is, you know, self-actualization and the more esoteric, you know, sides of satisfaction. A lot of people 
maybe become obsessed with travel being the answer to those solutions. I mean, I think part of what Cassie's piece was getting at, and Cassie, you could speak more to this, is there's an actual physiological connection between... Or they're trying to discover one, right? Or the theory is that there may be one between those three things that you described as part of travel or anything else, I suppose, uh, although I guess that remains to be seen, and the avoidance of this mental deterioration, right? Yeah. And what I learned from researching the piece was years ago, researchers thought that we were born with a certain amount of neurons and that that number only went down. And only now are researchers starting to understand that that might not be the case and that it's these new and novel experiences that help us grow new neurons and you know, That's make crazy. our brains stronger. Travel so is the it, cure for college. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> American college. Do you need so a I new mean, brain? <laughs> Take a trip. Yeah, but I mean, the researchers will say, you know, is it travel? Well, you know, it's it could be through if you're doing it in the right way and if it's a passion of yours and whatnot. But but it could also be just exploring your own environment and like really deep diving into that too. Yeah, it could, yeah. could be a lot of things that you do while you travel that you could also do in your home environment you just don't necessarily do which is like we have another piece that went up that's about travel and and romantic relationships and how again there is research out there that shows that travel can lead to stronger relationships between you and your partner but then there's also people who say like you know actually there's a lot of things that can lead to stronger relationships you know about like challenging yourselves dealing with things that require compromise, you know, uh, new, enjoying new experiences together. A lot of those things can also be achieved outside of travel. You can go, like, take a cooking class or something. Yeah, but, but we don't work for Bon Appetit. <laughs> I know. So, so it is, it's like that, that's, but that's what I'm saying is why the science of it becomes so complicated. A lot of people travel in different ways, and a lot of people have different experiences when they travel, so it's hard to, like, say travel's the reason. It's more like travel is this great vehicle for all these things. Well, it's the thing that happens while you're traveling. Again, if you're doing it the right way, probably they should fold the competitive traveler people in with the, you know, the the longevity people and others who are traveling for these different reasons and find out if they're getting Whose the brain same thing. Better. Yeah, yeah. If they're getting the same thing out of it because who it's looks the, younger. Yeah. Yeah. Um Seb, you mentioned travel being good for relationships and strengthening relationships. What is it specifically about the context of travel and the experience of doing it together? What are the mechanics of that? Well, so there have been a number of studies that have looked at, you know, the relationships between travel and romantic relationships in a lot of different ways. So, for example, couples who travel more have reported higher satisfaction out of their relationship. And a lot of that's apparently due to improved communication between the two people in the partnership because... Because I think travel tests you in that sense, because you have to like suddenly plan things. You have to deal with unexpected situations and communicate a way out in a place that's unfamiliar. I mean, it brings to mind something that Pilar said one time when she was on the podcast. I think we were talking about parenting, where challenge is actually productive in some kinds of ways. Well, because it's also novelty, and relationships can be strengthened by... You're experiencing this new thing together, so you have to communicate through it because neither of you know what the hell's going on. Instead of being like, "Hey, you want to? It's date night. Let's go to that restaurant we've gone to 400 fucking times." It's like, (laughs) let's like go to something that's going to be a new experience, and we're both going to experience it together and have this thing to talk about and remember for years to come. Well, and even if you if you boil it down just to simply conversation in general that we all do every single day, but. I mean, going back to the older population for a second, some of those researchers will tell you, you know, conversation is hard. It's not easy for your brain and it keeps your brain 
learning and working Mm -hmm. as you age and as we get older you know if you're isolated or whatnot you might be more susceptible to conditions like depression and whatnot and a simple thing like conversation if you're not getting it every day can can help you Totally. Brad, you can speak to this, but when I graduated college, I lived in New York for a time without a job, and my mom sent me this self-help book, which is called The Defining Decade, and if we have any listeners who are like in their 20s, you should totally read this book. Um, it's by... Uh, running out of time. I should read it quick. <laughs> it's by this... Me too. I think she's... Uh, I'm still waiting for the part that I can speak no, to. No, 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 I promise. I, I promise. No, uh, you're in your 20s. <laughs> I, I was. No, but... Um, <laughs> Try to remember. In this book, this psychologist who worked works mostly with people in their 20s, kind of goes through all the problems that she sees come up over and over again with the people who come in and speak with her. And one of the things she suggested was if you are like very serious in a relationship with someone, the like best thing you can do for your relationship if you like want to like get married um, or get engaged is to go travel to a third world country because it's the closest to being married with kids that you will ever be without being married with kids because it's so new and difficult and you have like no idea what you're doing sometimes um, and you're going to come across problems that you would not if you're like in in the U.S. when everything is fairly accessible. I had a relationship once that ended on a trip. I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, and it was because of that. It's because suddenly we were in this situation where we're being tested like we had never been before and was like, hey, you know what? Maybe this isn't a thing we want to happen. Yeah. I guess I can see both sides of this where and I'm not I'm still not sure what the because of the You're kids. You're married with kids. I'm married with kids. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, You're okay. the only and one I also here. Did, and I also and I also did um I did travel not to a third world country necessarily, but um but I did travel prior to that. And I, I do think again, it's back to this notion of challenges and having to improvise and having to sort of think your way through something. And I do understand how the travel and being in these kind of unfamiliar situations, challenging situations could be a make or break kind of moment. Because you have to rely on each other like you never really have. Yeah. So two things will happen and they ha- both of them will happen in my experience, but especially with kids. One is that you will be together and united in the face of difficulties, right? And that can happen just because the context is different, the language is different, the protocols are different, and so the two of you are trying to figure it out together. Mm -hmm. And the other one is that the tension sort of provokes confrontation in and of itself. And that happens a lot with kids, right? I do agree that that's sort of a pattern with parenting that also applies to travel. Sometimes the challenge will unite you and sometimes the challenge will divide you. And I do think that that's true of both of those contexts. But I thought the thing I was trying to recapture with that Pilar had said is that, you know, we were talking about why you travel with kids and why it's important, you know, all the things that they sort of get out of it. And she said, it's actually good for your children to see you in these challenging situations and to see you kind of stumbling Mm. and failing and to see you struggling with another language, trying to do something incredibly basic, trying to order a hamburger, or order probably not a hamburger because then you'd be in the United States, and order whatever it is that you're gonna order, or Yakitori. operate, a, yeah, f- figure out what's on the menu, you know, or how to operate a particular piece of basic machinery, or navigate, this is a really common one, right? Navigate your way through a train station to find the right train in a country where, you know, let's say it's Japan or it's China and you don't actually speak the language and you don't even read the language. And so it's good for your children 
to sort of see you going through that process and, I mean, God willing, I guess, surviving it and, and sort of getting past it, it teaches them something about resilience and persistence, I guess. I also think, and maybe this is like too abstract and like romantic or something, I also think it's good for you to see yourself go through those situations, you know, because it's like the ultimate humbling experience to just be like holy shit i have no idea what i'm doing and like i'm at the and mercy if you of strangers can do it if you can get to the train it's right. an accomplishment totally. and it's something that you can feel good about and there's something that travel gives you that i feel like you don't get necessarily if you're like stay within your routines and within the comfort of your your home you know again it's back to the things that it gives you that are positive which is that sense of being able to confront those kinds of challenges and be resourceful enough in one way or another Maybe not with flying colors, maybe not with grace every minute of the day, but to get yourself through them. And that gives you an increased sort of sense of, I think you get both things in that context. You're right, Sev, like you get humbled, which is healthy, mm -hmm. right? Like it's healthy for all of us to get humbled once in a while and to realize that it is a big world out there and we really are tiny little pieces in it and we don't understand everything. Like, I, that like we do. I may know everything about the street I live on, but beyond that, Right. It's important to be reminded that you don't. Right. And so to come face to face with that is healthy mm -hmm. and is perspective shifting in a positive way. But then also to get your way through it and it's sort of like embrace the context enough to solve the problem, whether it's finding the train or ordering the meal. Those are very quotidian things, but that's exactly why they feel so challenging. Right. You feel powerless when you can't do a basic thing that you do every day of your life in your normal context and suddenly that's all changed and now I can't even order breakfast or whatever, you know? But then once you do, you feel a sense of accomplishment, which is also beneficial. And you feel like you're a more resourceful person as a result of that. So I can see that. I don't know what the science is of that though. But I think it goes back to, I mean, like you get that rush from being accomplished and you get like a little bit of, I did it. Mm -hmm. I can take that next risk, which then I think can turn into just a chain reaction yeah, of I can be. do this, I can go do that train and then like, okay, I'm going to go to the train and then I'm going to like make a spur of the decision moment and go to dinner somewhere. I have no idea how to get there and I'm going to walk and ask a stranger. And like, I think that's like kind of the chain reaction of a trip that if you are open-minded can again, bring that social interaction and like that intellectual challenge that is going to help you be a stronger, smarter person. Yeah, and it goes back again, probably to dopamine. Yeah. As you're as you're navigating that, there is a bit of a you know, like a very simple effort and reward thing that you're going through over and, and over it's, again. And it's right? on those small things, so it's yeah. happening pretty it's like, frequently. I can order a beer. You know, like, <laughs> I can order a sandwich now. <laughs> yeah, I am amazing. <laughs> and with relationships, it's all of that. But then it's also a very simple point that in this piece that Tyler Moss wrote for us about travel and, and romantic relationships, it's a break from partners, especially if there's kids involved, seeing each other as partners in child rearing and housework and other, you know, household routine. And that alone is like a very important break to have for a second, you know? So I do. <laughs> I don't. Do you know? Uh, I do know. Well, and if we go back to the just the whole idea of going somewhere that's completely foreign, there was a study that they did on Twitter and they found that happiness levels of users increased the further people went from home. So they were Absolutely. they tracked it by geotags. And so people were using happier words, you know, amazing oh, wow. and whatever. And they were taking more pictures. 
And so that's kind of interesting if you if you think about it from that perspective of just going somewhere really far that that might have its, you know, challenging moments, but ultimately it is going to make you happier. I think the other side of that, though, is something that we also have kind of talked about in the office. Ryan, who, um, if you listen to our podcast for the last couple of weeks, was talking on talking about points, but he um, kind of pulled together all of these Instagrams that our editors had taken, where what you saw in the photo and what the caption was, was like not at all what the story was with the photo. And I've talked about the time on this podcast before where I walked up an entire mountain in Ecuador to get a freaking Instagram photo and it was cloudy and like it did not you lied <laughs> no but I mean I, t- I posted the picture and was like oh my gosh having so much fun on this mountain swing in Ecuador <laughs> and like I ended up feeling that way but at the beginning I was like so disappointed but I wasn't gonna let you're, you're anyone like, know that guys check out this letdown <laughs> yeah <laughs> right so i think that like, like if p- you hate it too <laughs> part, of, part of it is yes you know when you go somewhere you want to share that like exciting new thing so you're going to be talking about how exciting it is but at the same time i think you know ryan's example was he and his girlfriend went to some pyramids in mexico and it took them like six hours to get there and it was so terrible and i think their bus broke down or something yeah. crazy and then it's just like this really gorgeous picture of his girlfriend sitting on a pyramid and he's like i will never go back there but like it was a great photo <laughs> yeah so so like social media does add like a different right so i think yeah, i was gonna say there's like a pressure on social media when it comes totally. to travel and when it comes to photos to have those moments which is probably then, totally different than what june probably has experienced in her life traveling and i think it's interesting well is it i mean does the social media induced dopamine bursts <laughs> which i don't know if you get that from posting that photo of the swing or not but do those have the same effect or so, is this so there's a breaking point at least this is maybe not social media specific but at least with like photos basically i'm looking at a, a story from from last year that we published how to have a, the most memorable vacations so the ones that you that stick with you that you think about and photos do help you remember something by taking photos on a vacation you'll remember it you're 40% more likely to remember details of that vacation because of the photos you took even without looking at the photo you can kind of remember taking that photo and what was happening but there's a point where if you spend more than 2 or more hours using phones and other devices a day on a vacation you're 26% less likely to, to remember a vacation. Oh, that so, is complicated math. <laughs> well, so basically it's saying that like, yes, photos help, but if you're spending, you know, an eighth of your waking hours, it's not the right math, a quarter <laughs> of a long, long t- proportion of your, of your waking hours. English major. On, on your phone, <laughs> liberal arts. Um, taking photos and sharing photos, you might not take away what you were going to take away originally, you know? So might, take the pictures, but don't spend like, like all of your time editing them and then posting <laughs> yeah. them. Just the first filter that looks good, just fucking post <laughs> it. Just put it up. Is there any, you know, back to Mark's sort of science of wanderlust, like one assumes that if there were truth to the, the sort of genetic origins of this, that there would somehow be an evolutionary benefit. Is there any theorizing as to whether this actually does enhance survivability or I mean, like whatever uh, on a basic level like absolutely so spreading the gene pool kind of thing yeah so i mean modern day travel wanderlust restlessness whatever you want to call it at its very basis is about risk taking and smart risk taking was likely over the generations hundreds of generations prioritized in our genetics especially like when you're talking about hunter gatherers people who took the risks and came back with the rewards were the ones who 
kept the lineage going, right? Actually, that's one of the reasons that at least one of the researchers that Mark talked to, that was kind of one of the arguments against this being a genetic thing, because the risk-taking wasn't necessarily about travel. And it's just like in our modern manifestation, it could be seen in travel, in, in potentially in people who travel, but it's not just like the original risks that people were taking weren't about like having a new experience. It was about like going into that cave because there might be something to eat in there that they could bring back to their family, but there also might be like a saber-toothed tiger. (laughs) (laughs) Your eyes are so wide. (laughs) There could be a saber-toothed tiger in this metaphorical cave. You know what I mean? So it's saying that like, yes, there's definitely a connection between at least the gene that this people claim is responsible for our wanderlust and our evolutionary history with taking risks. Um, but that could just as well be used as a counter argument, basically saying that like we are taking risks a long time before we were traveling for, for our own, you know, well self-actualization. But I, I don't see it just as like you went into the cave with the saber toothed tiger. It's also, there are two things that are, sort of essential to, I mean, again, we're sort of being very speculative at at a really important level, but like pattern recognition and particularly pattern disruption recognition was at least in theory, an important tool for survival amongst early humans, right? It was the ability to recognize when there was some beast of prey or some danger in the landscape rather than just trees and grass, right? So that you could escape it. But there's also this other notion that, again, is kind of silly and speculative, but the idea that the wider you roam, the more you kind of like, forgive the metaphor, but spread the gene pool, so to speak, the better your chances of survival, right? Because if, if in one climate, if one climate proves inhospitable and you went to another one, you just increased your chances over the, the person who didn't go, like who didn't leave home, so to speak, if you want to put it in kind of more conventional terms. That all makes sense, but it doesn't have a lot to, or doesn't seem to have its manifestation as like, I really want to go to Saigon to eat street food, you know, it's kind of a tenuous connection. Between but then you could just things. also say, like, you could go all the way back and say, we all, you know, we walked out of Africa 100, 200,000 years ago, 150,000 years ago. Because food got scarce. So maybe, like, that was the beginning of it. Maybe we're just meant to travel ever since. You know, we go Walking. to where the opportunities are. Yeah. So, but, like, but that isn't the same as but that, that's not that's not that's not saying that, a, you know, a certain type of person has the gene to travel more than another. It's saying that just as homo sapiens... It's like what we do. And this is also a question I feel like we can't answer, but I'm just going to ask it. So if we have any scientists um, who are well-versed in nomadic behavior, please uh, tweet at us. Um, but I, I would just be so curious to see like someone like June or someone like the competitive travelers that we're going to have come into the studio in a couple weeks. What is their genetic and brain makeup compared to like Mongolian nomads who like that is their way of life is to always be traveling be and... And in a different way, traveling because they're traveling for survival and for home and to kind of keep up uh, pastures. Yeah, with their livestock. But I think that that's interesting because it's kind of the same thing, but very different. I don't know. I don't have the answer. I don't think anyone's also do, talking but... about like travel as a necessity versus right. travel no, as a privilege. Exactly. So I it's... generally exercise the latter of those. <laughs> right. So but yeah, it's it's like it's, except it's... when you're on the lamb. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, I don't. It's like that's something that I would be curious to know about. Cassie, what was the theory with June and with the longevity study? What was the theory about effects outside the brain for longevity and the relationship to travel? So that's the thing that the researchers are really trying to figure out, and they've had a tough time pinning down similarities. And the only one that researchers have said, you know, outside of what's going on in the brain is the social element. And with June, it's travel. With other people, it's volunteering, you know, participating in church groups, playing cards, exercising with groups. But, you know, going back to your question, Meredith, is there something else going on here? Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see what the research says in a couple of years. One of the things that kind of stands out to me that, that June said just along the lines of the intellectual benefit that you get from travel is she said to me, quote unquote, when you go to Iran, Dubai, India, or China, and then read about these places in the news, everything makes more sense. In a three-week trip, I know I don't have the whole story, but I have more than I did. And, you know, I think that speaks to the benefit of going to a place, not just reading about it, not just looking at the pictures, not just, you know, scrolling through your social media feed to, you know, satisfy that intellectual curiosity, if you will. It also speaks to, like, part of what her motivation is then at 86 to keep doing it. It's like knowledge and information. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of ultimately what a lot of this travel, the benefits of travel boils down to is following your, your own passions and right. fulfilling your own life goals and doing it through travel. Right. It could be knowledge. It could be like chasing the greatest meal of your life, you know? Right. Has there been any examination of, since you mentioned those things, Cassie, like, has there been any examination of the differential behaviors of frequent travelers, let's say, in terms of like their rating on, on scales of empathy, their ability to negotiate? Are there, in the similar vein to the notion that relationships can become stronger with this, is that because the two partners, through the virtues of travel and all these things we've been talking about, become better at negotiating certain basic things in life? Um, or business that come up? I'm hesitant to get too sciencey here. Like you said, you know, to some extent, this is speculative. But, you know, if we use June as an example, and, you know, she's an avid traveler, she's part of the super aging study. And what the researchers see in the super aging brains is that as most of us age, our brains shrink, their brains lose less volume. And specifically, that's kind of that has to do with cognition and thinking skills. So, you know, people in the super aging study, you might have better thinking skills, better cognition skills. Um, is that due to travel? You know, perhaps for June it is. She would tell you it is. And certainly for June, she sees travel as something that's building empathy for her and an ability to sort of see the world in a more nuanced way um, and to contextualize things that she learns about the world through her own experience in a more nuanced way. But then right? the same, yeah, and like she's getting probably getting better at that because of travel. But then you could also say the only reason she didn't in the first place was an already... because she's that kind of person. Yeah, exactly. She already had yeah. that openness to experience right. or whatever else. So it's, I feel like it could go both ways. Um, and I've written about the, the super aging population before and one word that always stands out with them that you hear 
them use and that you hear them described as is curious. Mm -hmm. And she told me she was a curious person. She said, I want to be a lifelong learner. To me, travel makes life so much more interesting. Which is so admirable at the age of 86 to still be curious, right? Like, rather oh, than yeah. being she like, was, I've seen it was, all, you know? <laughs> yeah, she was trying to get me off the phone and pack her bags. She's off to Ethiopia, so. <laughs> That's crazy. And like, I, but I think connecting it all, talking about like individual wonderless relationships, I think one of the things that I think is very true and could be proved is wherever it comes from, that wonderlust can be contagious in a way. What? Yes, absolutely. Think about think about people who are like in relationships who like one person was like a crazy traveler, the other had never been out of their state, and then they started being together, and suddenly this person was opened up to it. Like I've seen that again and again and again, and you hear it as as Mark points out in his piece, you hear it in like our idioms, our language. Like you you catch the travel bug, you know. It's something that that can happen to you too because you have either someone in your life who turns you onto it, or you have that one experience where you're like holy shit, what have I been missing? Like, time for me to hit the road, you know? So I think that it is, it's, sure, there, there is the argument that it could be innate in some people, but it's definitely something anyone can suddenly have. So the idea is that it's a genetic predisposition or potential, like genetic potential that everybody has, but it needs to be activated in some way. Yeah, or, and, or I mean, that's a theory. I mean, that's, I, I don't know. Again, it's all theories. There's no... Well, Mark's piece, I think, ultimately doesn't come to a conclusion, right? There isn't a conclusion. There isn't a scientific conclusion. On there isn't this a yet. scientific conclusion, but I think the one conclusion you can take from it is that it is something that can be activated, even if it is something that's also innate in some people, which is the more kind of inconclusive part. It is something that someone who doesn't have the gene, eighty percent of the population, can still get. Uh, okay. Doesn't that not make sense? No, it does. It does. It does. He's looking I at was, me like it doesn't was, make sense. No, I here, here's why I'm saying it doesn't. It, it's not that it doesn't make sense. It's just that I don't think it can be both at the same time. You have to be talking about two different things. And not to get nerdy about this, but like, if it's genetic, you either have it or you don't. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. And if it's genetic and you don't have it, if you're if like twenty percent has it and eighty percent doesn't, then and the, that eighty percent that eighty percent just doesn't have it. Like if then, then but they're I, getting but I think, it some other way. I think Sebastian's point too is that it's not just this one gene. It's right. everything that feeds into it, and it's the gene. It's risk taking. It's wanting to be social. It's wanting to learn. It's all of these different things, and that's what makes it so difficult to pinpoint. But if we are exposed to travel, maybe one part will light up. Exactly. It's like it's saying like. If this gene really is the, we're like, just gonna let Cassie's your spokesperson from now on. <laughs> if, if, what Sebastian meant was, it's totally she nailed it though. It's like saying that, like, yes, first of all, if this gene is really a thing, which it's not necessarily a thing, but if this gene is a thing, it's saying that all people with this gene want to travel, but not all people who want to travel have this gene because right. those people can also want to travel and rectangles, because of other Sebastian. <laughs> totally makes sense. Okay. Brad still doesn't seem convinced. <laughs> no, he doesn't. No, 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 I this do. Conversation I, I is think, continue I, no, Cassie, Cassie made it make sense in, in the sense that. In, 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 like, got it, like, Brad. We just, we just got to let her talk. Um, but, uh, like, because this is why the science of this is hard, is because there could be multiple factors that are at play here. And some people are doing it for one reason and one reward, and other people are doing it for another reward. I think it will be interesting, you know, not to sort of draw a loop around it, but I think it will be, number one, I think back to the notion of children, 
it does suggest to me, at least as a parent, that I I can provoke this in my son and that perhaps... And my mom, that's exactly what she did for me. My parents did for me, yeah. If you look at somebody like June or any uh, of the other examples that we could cite and you think that, you know, the benefits that she's had from this are good things and you want to you want to sort of encourage those in your kids then there may be a path for that that's great but it'll be interesting to me to talk to the people who seem to be on the other side of the line of this where it's gone in a direction that maybe hasn't led to so many positive outcomes for them and has produced some negativity at least behaviorally you know or i mean i don't know i don't want to be judgmental about it like who knows how they feel about it but if they're not, you know, like to your point, Seb, that they've crossed that line where it's no longer a benefit. Now it's it's more of a detriment. They well, now. So I, I interviewed Adrian Ballinger and Corey Richards, who climbed Mount Everest without supplemental oxygen. And one of the things that Richards said to me, he said, it can't just be about climbing Everest. It has to be about doing it for the experience. And we have been climbers our whole lives. And this has been something that wasn't just five years, even 10 years in the making. It was our whole lives. And if it's just about climbing Everest or just about, you know, doing that one thing, then that might be fueled by something else. So it's a matter of personal identity and their sense of self. Is that what you're getting at? And not just like checking yeah. off and this not, another and box. And not yeah. just the, the act. He it's said, the, it's the top he of said, the pyramid, Maslow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he said climbing Everest in and of itself shouldn't be the goal. People who set the goal of I want to climb Everest are most likely driven by something less authentic than those who say I love climbing and allow that trajectory to take them there. And, you know, the same could be perhaps said about travel. Tune in in two weeks when we talk to people who uh, yeah, Fred and Lee. count their countries and we'll find out why. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll have to put a, give them a, an fMRI while they're talking <laughs> see, see what, what the readout is. But I love the idea that the top of the pyramid could be feeding the bottom of the pyramid. I love the idea that the servicing the top of the pyramid could be benefiting you in a very physiological kind of way, totally. like a very basic physiological way, like June's brain's bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, that, stronger. Yeah, stronger. Yeah. That that is is totally physiological and very basic, and it's being fed by her doing the things that feed the top of the pyramid mm-hmm. side of herself, and that I think is really intriguing. Is great transition into forest bathing, but we'll have to <laughs> save that for something else. Forest bathing. Yeah. We're gonna get into forest bathing when we t- just read the story. Read It'll the be story. out by the time this podcast is out. Okay. Hopefully. Forest bathing. Hold Seb to it. Okay. Well, that seems like a good place to end up for today. We're going to come back to this in a different way in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned. Thanks to all of you guys for being here. Thanks for tuning in, uh, Cassie, and also for the piece and Seb and Mare, of course, as always. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes and SoundCloud and visit us at cntraveler.com. We are Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and on YouTube, and we are at CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And please do tweet at us. As we proved last week, we will program a podcast for you. <laughs> and next week. Yeah, tune in next week <laughs> next because week. we um, had a really great Twitter showdown between a bunch of editors to help someone plan their honeymoon. And it has inspired our uh, next podcast, which is not about honeymoons at all, but you'll have to tune in to figure it out. 
So tune in next week for another user-ordered podcast, podcast on demand. <laughs> Send us feedback, review us on iTunes. We really love to hear what you're thinking, what your ideas are, what you want to know from us and hear about from us. Cassie, where can the folk find you on the social medias? I am at C short sleeve on Instagram and Twitter. Mayor? I'm at oh hey there mayor on Twitter. Best handle ever. <laughs> I say it every time. Seb? I'm at Seb Modek on the things. <laughs> That's good, but not All as good things. as Meredith. <laughs> <Not> as good. <laughs> yeah. And I'm at Brad Rick. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for tuning in.